you can try to slather skills on top of things, but I guess they call that putting lipstick on a pig. It doesn't change it. It's like what you really have to think about is that public speaking is a game of worth. And when you start working into worth, you are going to come back to the body. Welcome to the Happyish Ever After podcast. That's right, happy-ish. Because instead of fairy tales of perfection, we celebrate real lives and real stories. I'm Tatiana, your host, and I'm here to guide you on your journey to better health and self-acceptance. Join me every week as we delve into science-backed truths about health, from understanding our bodies to caring for our emotional well-being. Let's get started. Hello and welcome, Denise. I'm so excited to have you on Happyish Ever After. We're going to have a wonderful conversation today all about how people who are in leadership roles are able to maintain their health, be able to find that kind of balance within themselves, and what role it plays in actually their ability to function as an executive or as a leader of a team and things like that. So I'm just going to jump right in and tell everybody a little bit about Denise. So Denise Stewart is a freelance theater artist, speaker, and executive coach. She's toured her one-woman show, Dirty Barbie and Other Girlhood Tales. Oh my gosh. I just, when I'd read originally when you sent that to me, I was like, how did I miss that? Because that sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) Well, she toured through the Southeast and she also did runs in New York, DC, and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. She's a former TEDx speaker and a speaker coach, and she works with companies and individuals on public speaking, the power of storytelling, and presence, which is so important. She is currently a lecturer at the University of Virginia and has been there since 2013, and she currently teaches in the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here and talk to you. Yeah, I'm so glad that we got to connect through a mutual friend who told me about the work Mm -hmm. that you do. And I was like, wow, this is such an important topic. And I don't think that enough emphasis has been put on it. And when you're a leader in an organization, the organization will give you a lot of skills for leading teams, but only you know what that right balance is for what you need every day. And I think we tend to put it aside. So I was really excited how you have combined these areas of executive coaching and health and well-being and how you've incorporated the two. So I'd love it if you could share with our audience your journey into the field of executive coaching and why you thought it was so important to integrate health and wellness into your practice. Great. For a number of years, I was doing wellness coaching, which really spun out of having done corporate wellness coaching for a very well-known corporation and then going around to companies and working with them, sometimes 12 companies a week. Then I was also teaching at University of Virginia, and that was really spilling into more coaching for public speaking and presence because people organizations, groups were naturally reaching out to theater professors to say, can you come talk to our people about Mm -hmm. their presence, about public speaking? And that was how I became a TEDx coach through that. So as those were moving forward, they were just concurrent, not really competing with each other, 
but definitely felt like I did wellness coaching and I did executive coaching because executive coaching was also getting into career mapping, was getting into strategy work, managing difficult conversations, all of those. And then one day I was talking about it to my husband and he said, well, it's all executive coaching. What you do is all executive coaching. It just falls under a different area of focus per the client. And I thought, well, that simplifies it for me. When I, I already have enough categories of how I talk about myself, whether I'm a theater artist or a lecturer or a coach, I already had enough categories. So to combine the executive coaching and put wellness up underneath it, a lot of things really started to come together and how I was able to use techniques I was using in the different areas for everything I was doing when I was coaching with a client. I love that. I feel so often we're so busy in the trenches of doing the things. And then you have somebody mm-hmm. who just leans over and says, um, they're the same thing. And yeah. you're like, wait, yeah. I have been actually trying to keep these two things separate that mm-hmm. want to come together. And that mm-hmm. it seems to me that it, it just sort of naturally melded together because you recognize the significant overlap, but also the gap. And, you know, when that was coming together, then it was also true what I had known for a long time, which is that my theater work was not outside of it. My theater work and training underpins all of it. And that actually one of the fundamental aspects of training that I got as an actor, playwright, and director was you have to take care of your instrument. You have to take Mm. care of your body that we would get called on the carpet. If we showed up at a rehearsal and the director found us outside drinking a Coke and smoking a cigarette, that was when I was back in college. I wasn't smoking cigarettes, (laughs) but my friends were, (laughs) I grew up with smokers, so I wasn't into that, but I certainly was not a great eater in college. And our professors, our directors, they called us out all the time and said, you can't treat your body like this. It's never going to last not even the run of a regular show, much less a career in the theater where you have to be, stay healthy, you have to be good. So as I go back, I think theater informs it all because it was really important training that the body, the voice, mental health, all of that was really important to being a successful actor or playwright or director. So that helped me understand There's a wholeness to what I do that's underpinned or supported by my training in theater. Wow. I think the rest of the world is actually catching up to what you have intuitively already done. That people are starting to realize that you cannot separate your physical self from your ability to perform and Mm -hmm. performance might not be in the literal sense as somebody in the performing arts, but as a laborer, as an executive, as a caregiver in any area of work, whether it's paid or not paid, your ability to care for your whole self, your physical, your emotional, making sure you have social connections. It feels like you intuitively are already there. Like you managed to draw that all together. So I'm wondering when you are working with your executive clients, I'm going to assume that they aren't all at the same stage that you are in understanding the connection. How do you assess their needs for their overall well-being beyond their professional goals? As much as I like to talk and I'm never short on opinions, I do think that 
learning to be a coach who listens, who really, really listens and then asks the next question and the next question to get them talking and telling stories. They will talk about the outcomes that they are not enjoying. That's often how they land at my door is because someone Mm. has said, "Uh, you need to go talk to Denise or they have met me and thought, eventually I'm going to go talk to this woman. And so they show up in a place of dis-ease, you know, something is not working and they know it. So we often start in a place where they feel like they're not okay. And then we work backwards, examining places that they have thought that they were thriving mentally, physically, emotionally while they are working and how much that helped. And we start to unpack limiting beliefs, stories that are affecting how they think about themselves or how they feel like they can't change. So just for instance, a long time ago, I was working with very, very successful real estate agent and his doctor had sent him to me and he had said, the only way I'll ever be able to take care of myself is when I stop working. And then he said in like two other sentences, he said, and I'm not anywhere near being dead working that I'm 20 years before I want to stop working. And so we kind of had to look at how perfectly he had set things up to be unable to change Mm. and really have to be able to show people what they've said as a reflection of what they're thinking and how, how they're thinking every day, all day is manifesting in how they are behaving. When you can start working with that and you have to be able to show them this is what I heard and this is the way you're thinking and this is why you're not changing. Then you can start to present other options and have them start to live differently outside the room with me. I usually meet with people in this room right here and then, you know, anybody can talk a good game, including myself. It's the work they do after they leave here and then come back to me. That's what we have to really dig into the next time is what actually happened once they left. And then we can get some momentum going. That's where it starts getting good. Can you explain to me a little bit more about how you get there? Like, what is it you see? Or are there things that people say in particular? The hardest thing I think to change is mindset and Mm -hmm. patterns. Because my experience has been people believe that this is just the way things are. And they have evidence for it. Oh, absolutely. They have evidence for it. And that is very helpful. Evidence is really helpful (laughs) to not change, right? Evidence rarely. Well, I'll tell you, these whiteboards, you can probably see them on both sides. So in the the background, you're showing me whiteboards on both sides of the office. Mm -hmm. That's great. That is really, this is the perfect room because sometimes I have them when they're standing there, I have them, I said, map it out. Show me what you're working with. And other times as they're talking, I'm standing and I'm writing the things that they said, or other times I'm working on a timeline with them. And we're walking through pivotal moments or places that they experienced change or made a decision or started to see trends. So the visuals, like looking at what you're saying or thinking, and then unpacking that, and then also starting to work with strategy and visualization that talking never seems to be enough. I have to help them see it and I have to see it for myself, processing it, thinking about it. That's how I feel like we can really start to make change or start to make other decisions. So how do you find that balance 
for your executive clients who you're working on with them. Maybe they've been introduced to you because their doctor has recommended that you're someone that they speak to, or maybe it's because they need to work some more on their leadership skills. You Mm -hmm. recognize that they're in both spaces. How do you manage that balance? Part of it is, and I'm working with this with my UVA students as well, is that once you start talking about presence or executive functioning, executive work strategy, the places that people get waylaid or that they don't have confidence, you know, you can try to slather skills on top of things, but I guess they call that putting lipstick on a pig or something like that. Like (laughs) it doesn't change it. It's like what you really have to think about is that public speaking is a game of worth. And when you start working into worth, you are going to come back to the body. And people are walking daily with trauma or unprocessed trauma, or they are dealing with a lifetime of messaging about their body or a lifetime of scrutiny about their looks or their height or their um, gender or their like social background, where they came from, that you're carrying a lot with you. So once we start dealing with where is it that they feel unworthy or why are they hiding their body? What are they going through? We can get into any kind of discussion, whether it's style and how they show up in spaces to how they feed and care for their body. And then that all starts to, again, we've come back to foundation, like foundational self-care I find in general is going to improve worth. And once worth, like a sense of worth, a sense of deservingness. Once that starts to come up, then you can start to see authentic changes in how someone shows up daily in their position. Especially when you have people leveling up, right? When every time we, all of us level up, suddenly we can be overcome with a certain amount of insecurities like, you know, who am I to be managing these people or are they going to listen to me? Or, you know, some basic imposter syndrome things, I would say everybody faces some level of niggling insecurities as they level up that they have to overcome through daily work and showing up and showing that they can do the job. But if there's messages of unworthiness or I'm not enough under it, it'll keep rearing its head and you have to keep working on that. Self-care, strengthening the body, resting the body so you can actually sleep and think straight, not poisoning the body. A lot of things of this will go well towards like, just like good care. We'll do a lot for, I know who I am and I take care, good care of myself. Yeah. And I'm worthy of taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. Now, and I, other things, because other people won't take care of you until you're in trouble, you know, until you start getting lots of feedback of like, you look tired, or you're actually having breakdowns, or you're getting sick in other ways. And then people really do care. But if you have good habits, a lot of times you can get ahead of those things. Absolutely. I think what a lot of people grow up thinking is, that person, that leader, or that executive member, or whoever it is, they've got it figured out. And that's Mm -hmm. how they got there. 
Mm-hmm. We'll see people fall apart and we'll be like, well, they overstepped, right? There's a lot of that belief system that we carry. But the reality is that leaders are often just like us and they have those same concerns and sometimes they even become magnified. We know like there's a lot of studies that have said that your average woman will not apply on a position until she has mastered all of the items Mm -hmm. that are being requested in the job description. Whereas men will be like, I'll take my shot. Yeah. But so it really does. There's a, a, a gender impact. And then there's how many women we see in leadership roles and then how women themselves can perceive themselves in a leadership role and feeling true to their own style of leadership. But you're talking a lot. It sounds to me like mindset and having that emotional well-being. But you also mentioned fueling your body with good foods and making sure that you have enough sleep so that cognitively you can make those decisions. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in how you have seen when there's a shift for a leader in how they care for themselves, how does that actually contribute to their overall effectiveness? Because it's a big thing to start shifting the way that you're doing things. And when you're in that leadership position and somebody said, I think you need to see this executive coach, they'll help you level up. Then this Denise Stewart comes out of nowhere and says, and what you need to do is sleep a bit more. <laughs> and, and I'd really like you to think about what you're putting in your body. And they're like, how is that going to get me through the next quarterly, you know, AGM and I have to do these big presentations and my team has to deliver this. And, and there might be some resistance to that, but I'm sure that you've certainly experienced and witnessed how Mm -hmm. it can improve them because that's part of getting them on board. Is it? Yeah. I think that sometimes people, you mentioned it a little bit that they other themselves Mm -hmm. instead of seeing the roadmap or the trail that others have already blazed, that there are executives all over the place talking about their habits and what works for them. There are athletes, professional athletes all over the place talking about this is what I do every day, that there have non-negotiables about these things. And it is the road to excellence. And it's been mapped out for us by so many people, you know, Brene Brown will say, sobriety is my superpower. I've heard her yeah. say that, that each person, you know, has things that they do that are non-negotiable that they see as strengthening components. And whether it has to do with exercise, sleep, the way they eat, some people choose to work with a certain uniform, you know, they take out decision fatigue because they wear something they feel stylish and professional in, and then they're not thinking about it every day and they're not second guessing what's clean and what are they going to wear. You see executives that have habits about how they keep their physical spaces, how they keep their desks, what their habits are regarding messages, how they handle the nighttime. You know, the nighttime, what happens after four o'clock is usually the richest place that I can reach into someone's life and say, what the hell is going on? You know, like, because those are a lot of times where you'll find the habits that undo someone. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, what is it that happens after four? 
Yeah, you can find, yeah, you'll find a whole country of people having a great grilled chicken salad at lunch and saying like, I'm great, you know, but they're walking in the door and they're not transitioning well from the stress of the day, right? So they're not transitioning from who they were during the day to what the different identities are at home. And they might go right into snacks and drinking or because their day is too tight, there is not exercise built in to de-stress or to manage that time that you'll find people eating and drinking too late on their screens too late, working too late, challenging and pushing in on the boundaries of relationships, watching anything, getting into (laughs) ice cream and all kinds of things that I see can be habits that could undo somebody. And it's just, it's just unmanaged stress. It's not that they don't know better or that they think it truly deeply helps them. It's usually unmanaged stress. So a lot of times if we can really look into that, because a lot of people, and this would line up with what we know about decision fatigue, is that a lot of people through the early part of the day when cognitive functioning is stronger and their habits and their day are more organized for them or mm-hmm. set for them. It's that the time when things get loosey-goosey and are less structured or that time where you're really trying to manage how work blends into family or home life, where we will see decisions that don't help. And then those become habits that don't help. Oh, I'm going to say right now, like the, the words, what's for dinner that can take me down. That's like one decision too many. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's the world ender right there. But I so agree about the decision fatigue and Mm -hmm. that's that's how habits are formed like you know you if you've ever read you james clear atomic habits Habits. and and habits really are when you do things automatically because your brain does not want to make a decision about things every day and i also want to clarify for the audience when we talk about like you haven't got a workout in or or you're not eating great or something like that we're not talking about going to the gym and putting in 90 minutes with heavy weights. Like if it's a walk to just decompress, to get some fresh air and some time outside that we know is so critical to emotional well-being. It's really great to just move the body to get a few steps Mm -hmm. in. It's good to get the blood flowing and to give yourself some transition time. We are fundamentally people, not machines. And we take some time to transition. So I love that you're pointing out that these are things that are really important for everyone, not just executive everyone. And I also want to clarify for everyone, you don't have to be pedal to the metal in your workout at the same rate that you are in the day. It's about just giving that time. Yeah, no. And I think, I mean, this is probably a whole other discussion, but I'll bring it up because it informs my work and it has informed my life. And I would say that for the first at least 40 years of my life, I was operating, I'm 50, that I was operating out of wounded masculine behavior. I've really come to know that for a variety of reasons, mostly because of trauma, that I was operating that way. And and that can look like constant, like I'm not enough, my worth is proved by what I do, that I have to push and push and push. And then my exercise has to be hard driving and cardio 
a lot of cardio and I need to be punishing about my food and restrictive about my food. And it really has been just in this past five years. And even just in this last year, as it comes to movement, that I have really moved into something much more gentle for my body that really put a huge focus on walking to build cognitive strength and peace Mm -hmm. that I have released a lot of ideas about doing in order to prove my worth and a lot more allowing so that work could come to me and clients could come to me. So these have been revelations that I think are each person's journey towards what really works for you. So yes, when we say movement, I think it's about what is satisfying for you, Mm -hmm. what feels good and what's repeatable. I mean, it's a good thing to do things that are one-offs for fun, but I also see that when I look at the habits of athletes, productive, healthy creatives, when I look at executives that I like to follow that I think are saying things I think I can align with, that I see that they have a handful of habits that are pretty non-negotiable for them that line up under those categories of how they nourish, how they rest, how they move, and how they kind of set limits or have functional boundaries in home and work. Those areas seem to be important for people to decide this is what I do. And when people have incorporated that, what have you seen as far as change in their ability to show up in their professional lives? Well, one, I've seen them be able to make bolder choices that really reflect what they really want to do. So for instance, they might come to me and they already know they need to leave their job or change in some way, change their career. They're looking for a pivot. And when they start strengthening through these other avenues, they start to get bolder and believe in themselves more and know that their resilience is up so they can handle and weather this part that's the not knowing, the putting yourself out there. Because yeah. it's painful to change and it's painful to stay in the same place. So pick your pain and that doesn't sound very comfortable but that we also know that the pain of growth can be pretty exciting and worth it just like it it is when you're sore after a workout there's some satisfaction in there and you know you're on a path towards kind of like i'm a badass now you know and that (laughs) that happens Uh, self-care has a way of doing that right and so i see that people are able to manage status and power better when they are practicing better self-care. And I'm really working with that from when I'm directing teenagers in a theater production and helping them take care of themselves or find their path all the way up to the highest level executives that I work with, where pretty high level at that, where they are able to manage status and power in ways that they find that they can live with themselves with. At this moment, I wish that I also included the video because your body, like your actual presence sort of changed as you said that. (laughs) And I had this feeling like you were like up and you could just see like the breath coming in and the exact, you didn't say these words, but the feeling that I got was 
this is someone who is connected to their groundedness. Mm -hmm. Because when you know, you become so grounded, which makes decision-making easier when you're grounded. It's really hard to make a decision when you're out in the ocean and the storm is hit and you're not quite sure which direction you're supposed to be going in. You know, that's a good point. This is something I work with everybody on is I ask them to kind of identify and it's not always aligned with their horoscope because people don't always know. They always know their sun sign, but they don't always know their moon or rising sign. So it doesn't really matter for me. What I start to ask people is what's your element? Elementally, what are you? Are you fire? Are you water? Are you air? Are you earth? And when I start helping them break it down along that lines, then I can find somebody who lives in air, right? They are thinkers. They are logical. They tend to overthink. If I can get them walking and get them back, ground my air people with earth, get them grounded and back in their bodies, then that long walk will untangle that very active brain in the same way that like the fire people, <laughs> the, the fire people are awesome because they're action, they get things done, but they also can incinerate a bit. That, that can be your temperamental executives. That could be your person that does that email that they regret. And so working with those that fire people to get them to process a little bit of water, like to get into their emotions a little bit more because anger is, while some people would say it's not acceptable, in a lot of ways, anger is very acceptable as opposed to real sadness, which they haven't always found a place for. If you get people really identifying what's underneath, the emotions that are really underneath that fire and get them a little bit into their water, puts out the fire a little bit, it can be really helpful. So talking to people through a language of elements is also a way that I really help people know themselves better and then learn different tactics. Because coaching has to be about tactics too. Otherwise, it might get too therapy-ish, right? Yes. That we have to be intact. That's why I use the boards a lot. And it was, I use a lot of handouts and tactics and teaching in my work mm -hmm. because I want to equip and skill build and I want people feeling like, okay, yeah, that happened, but here's how I knew how to handle it this time. So that, that's another thing that I do. I love that use of the four elements. I know some people love their astrological signs, other people don't, but I think anybody can relate to the concept or the metaphors yeah. that are implicit even... to those. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I myself am, I think I'm with the majority of Scorpios who are still asking how in the heck did someone decide they were a water sign? Anyway, Interesting. <laughs> that's a whole yeah. sidebar conversation, yeah. but it is because that's, it's like, it's important for a Scorpio or someone who's been kind of labeled, you know, cause I'm a Taurus and I can be grounded. There's a lot of Taurus in me, a lot of earth in me, but who I got a lot of fire. So I know that I'm influenced by other elements and the more I know that, and I can overthink with the best of them, I can go air and I can cry my, you know, face off. So I can go into all the elements and the more I realize what's dominating me, the more I can learn at the moment, the more I can learn what balances me. Yeah. When you use that, the metaphor with the, 
you know, the four quadrants and the spheres. I think that's a great that, well, that's one of the tools that you use. What's another tool or tactic that you utilize to help executive leaders manage their energy levels and depletion? Because we know that's something that we hear a lot of. I mean, burnout rates post, can we say post pandemic? I never know. Right. We Someone know. was saying like, oh, you know, back in COVID. And I was like, maybe is it, was it COVID one? You know, is it COVID one? Uh, back in COVID one or something like that, because there's anyway, it's been a long road back, right? That it has been, but the burnout mm-hmm. rates, you know, we had the great resignation that happened. Mm-hmm. We have um, the whole gig economy where people are just taking on like short-term pieces of work. And now I think what I have heard the most about in this last half year has been burnout at all levels. Mm -hmm. So it's not just executive. So I'm wondering when I'm sure that you have historically come across this and how do you help the people that you coach with managing energy levels and avoiding that depletion? There's two things. One thing is... And again, I use the whiteboards for this is that I start to track energy leaks. Like, where's the energy leaking out? Because then we can find out where we could shore it up. And sometimes it can mean that for an executive, they're just not delegating and trusting enough. Mm-hmm. And we have to really dig into that because the, so, so much of their energy is going into following behind or not asking for help or doing things other people should be trusted to do. So learning how to figure out where their energy leaks are going, or an energy leak can just be figuring out that they have a cycling thought, which can happen if someone's business has taken a turn, or they are affected by trends, or they see trends, or, you know, they take a hit. They take a hit, you know, they, they, something happens that is, critical even or it feels critical at the moment and so that has been an energy leak and then the thoughts can be leaking energy so it's like i try to look at places for some companies it's like the energy leak you just follow the money so i follow the money leaks Mm -hmm. and the money leaks are the energy leaks because once we tighten those up then they stop feeling so like heart palpitations because they tightened up the money. So there's, there's different strategies you can use there to track energy leaks. And then we've got a better vessel in general, figuring out what's happening there. Then the other tactic would be one that executives and really almost anybody I work with loves, and that is work with visualization. Okay. What does that look like? Well, you know, most people really grow in about meditation. Everybody needs to be meditating and I could preach to you and blah, 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 but they're very <laughs> resistant. They're so resistant, but they're it's not. It's hard. Resistant. It's yeah. really, really yeah. hard. I yeah, tried supposed to, to be hard to yeah. a yin yoga class. I loved power yoga, loved it. Hot yoga, loved it. Yin yoga. I would sob on the floor for 45 minutes and I just want to leave. But I thought me leaving crying was just probably slightly worse than me just lying there crying quietly because it's, it can be hard for some people. And I'm one of those people. So I think resistance 
can be natural when you don't you want know, to but that, your feelings. You're telling that story. It's a perfect example of why yin is so amazing, right? Like yeah. it worked. It worked on you. You know, it worked. Now on I think you. it's amazing. <laughs> it's like the story uh, that this one couple went to go see a hypnotist at one of those big hypnotist things, and the couple both smoked, and they go to see the hypnotist, and the hypnotist is talking to the crowd and hypnotizes the crowd and everything, and the couple leaves, and they're just like, that was crap. There was nothing good about that, and they throw their cigarettes in the trash, like, we're just going to do it our way. <laughs> <laughs> like, it worked. <laughs> I think it worked. But it doesn't matter that you think the hypnotist did it or the other one didn't. It, what, what matters is the outcome is that it works. And so, yeah. But with visualization, it's a little more, it's more active, right? So it's visualization's more active. And there's a lot of great research behind it about how, you know, that in this study, I think out of Canada, the study is about visualization, how they use visualization across all these professions and for you know, young nurses that they felt more confident and more equipped, not only in their tests, but in their actual practical work, that they found that young surgeons were having better results in their surgeries and more confidence. And just across all these professions that visualization, like taking time to sit through and just picture the day. And so I work with people like walking through, visualizing a meeting or visualizing the evening like wherever we've identified this needs to change or like you need to change your habits or this person triggers me or this is I don't manage my weekends or whatever it is, we can look at that area and start to say, what is it that you want to have happen? And they go through visualization, which I have found very successful for me in theater in terms of memorizing lines. And so for me, I healed an energy league of worrying about going up on a line or memorization of lines or other anxieties that can creep into a performer's process. I healed that energy leak through visualization, taking time to sit. And I would sit through the length of the entire show I was working on, one woman show and otherwise, and walk through the whole thing. And whew, that was huge for me. And so I, I am my own testimony, but I really ask my clients to work through visualizing segments and then big, bigger chunks where, which could be a whole day or a whole weekend. And then we start to see it's something they can do, you know, and, and I don't ever call it meditation, which it's not because it's visualization. It's a different, it's a different way of working with the mind and goals and visions and dreams and desires it's a really powerful way of starting to change your neurological pathways not that i'm an expert on that i just know it works so. it does work and we're learning so much more about the brain and it's so interesting how when you visualize something the brain cognitively we know that it's not real but it's at that subconscious level that your brain doesn't know the difference. That's right. And does anybody think when they're visualizing and, you know, at some point the building is going to catch on fire and, and we're all going to have to escape the room and I'm going to be in charge, Do you know, like just bizarre things, but we can have a panic attack thinking, but what if, 
But the reality is when you go through a visualization process, but maybe you have had people, do you have people that when they go through the visualization, they're visualizing the worst or do they actually visualize it? Like, no, this is how I expect it will go. This is what it looks like. You know, they don't always tell me their executives don't like to tell you how they screw up, Mm. but I did recently have a group of physicians they're physicians, surgeons, and high-level hospital administrators. And I asked them to do a visualization for five minutes and probably about four of them. I mean, I don't know where everybody went, right? I don't know where they went in their heads, but I know that at least four of them, their bodies got up and left the room before the five minutes were over. So it was important for me to call them out (laughs) as a group and just say, I get it, but you need to become aware of the instinct or the urge to bail, right? They, they gave up on the visualization and left. And so it was important for me in managing power and status. And because I have a good sense of humor and I can do things in a funny way that are not so like school marmy ish, but I was able to call them out and say, you couldn't take it, right? That's five minutes five minutes and it's a great catch to say where else are you not sticking with it where else do you have the urge to bail and that's where we can hit pay dirt you know i'd love to be in that room (laughs) i was yeah that's a room i would (laughs) want to be in because that's a moment i could see at a time in my life that I would have been one of those people. I have important things. I've got to get this. I'm getting dinged for that. I don't have time for this. It's a hard thing, especially if you've come up through a corporate world that has determined that your value is based on production, like volume, ability to deliver all of that. I think that what you're doing is pretty innovative in the space of leadership. I'm still seeing a lot of executive leaders just being completely silent in that area of, of how you show up as a whole person. There's a light touch to it, but not really bringing people to the point that they're so uncomfortable that they have to leave a room. And it, you're right. It's in that discomfort that the juice is. So I'd like to ask you, what advice would you give to executives? who may be hesitant to invest time and resources into their personal well-being amidst all of their professional responsibilities. So they're listening to this podcast and they're like, but I really don't have time. Like that's great for them, but yeah, I don't even have, evidence. I don't right. even have right. the five minutes. They're right. Yeah, they're right. <laughs> What's the adage if you don't have, somebody say like, oh, I don't have 30 minutes to meditate. You say, oh, okay, then you need an hour, right? Isn't that the old saying? Like, yeah. oh, then you definitely, then you definitely need an hour. You know, I think the best clients I get, I think I've already said, I don't advertise. I really switched all of that. I just let people come to me. I don't advertise a bit. It's, I mean, you can find me on a website, but I'm not putting things out there. I'm not pushing, pushing, pushing. I let people come to me. And I'm always, when somebody gets sent to me, it's a bit of a red flag. Mm. So I'm always like, okay, we'll see. Because the people who come to me of their own volition, 
because it speaks to readiness. So I would say to anybody is you'll know when you're ready and that you don't want to go it alone. You'll know. And then that readiness is actually really good because then you're more likely to submit to a person like me. And then I mean submit in some interesting ways. And I mean submit is like if I have a client who is habitually five minutes late, we're going to talk about it because we need to fix that. We need to fix that. We need to talk about that. So there's little tells I get all over the place that I've gotten better at being bolder of talking to people about in my own ability to manage power and status. And so they need to find the right coach for them that can hold them and work with them, like hold their stuff, but also like give them that good feedback that really works for them, speak a language that they like and give them things they can work with. They'll know when they're ready. They'll what know does when that they're feel ready. Like? What, does, what do you think it feels like when you, if I look back, there were times when opportunities were available to me, but I couldn't even see them because I wasn't ready. And so I don't know. I'm trying to think right now as you're talking. Like, but you, I, well, I mean, you, you just know? said it, right? I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. You know. But how do you know when you bit, like, are ready? Oh, how do you know ready? Well, Sometimes it comes, be, you know, a big yuck period, right? Like okay. a big yuck period hits and you are, you're fed up with what's going on with your body or you're fed up with how little sleep you're getting or you're fed up with what you're putting up with at work. You're fed up. You're like you'll get to this like point where you know something's got to give but you don't want to do it by yourself because some people get to that point and they figure out what they want to do. They can do it on their own. And then other people want to coach because it helps them level up. And that accountability that a coach can offer, plus the tactics, plus the wisdom, plus the roadmap of how to do it, then that can be helpful. And a lot of times, you know, I'm boosting people. I'm like pumping them up because that's another good thing that I'm good at because it's easy for me to love. You know, it's really easy for me to love. It's just the aspect of how I do things. So I see, I see their higher self really easily. Mm. So I would find a coach that can do that too. That it resonates too, that can help you feel mm -hmm. better. So what I, I think I'm hearing here is that how you can tell that you're ready is when the discomfort of staying where you are is less than the discomfort of changing. So you know there's going to be discomfort to change and you think that actually will be less discomfort than living the life that I'm living today. Does that yeah, sound about most, right? Yes, yes. And most executives know the language of investment, right? That they they invest in any number of things. Like they invested in a great education or they invest in, in killer shoes or they drive a car they love, or they invest in real estate. They know the value of investment. And so for them, once they hit that point, then giving money to a coach or something, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice to them. It starts to make sense. Like, mm -hmm. oh, that makes sense to me. That's an investment in myself. That makes sense in the same way that, you know. And education that, is an investment in yourself. Yeah, I mean, I've, I invest in 
skincare. You know, like I, I've since I was 13 years old, I've cared about my moisturizer and stuff like that. That's just been fun for me, but who knows how much money I've spent on like lotions and potions and stuff, but I care about it. It's investment. It makes sense to me, but you kind of have to figure out that readiness blended with the assistance that you need. And also I have to say, I know this is true for other coaches and their coachees is that it's fun. It's not therapy. There are some therapeutic aspects of it, just in the same way therapy will have coaching in it at times, but it's much more dynamic. I think it's a dynamic kind of engagement between people. And I find it very invigorating for both sides and promising and not forever. I don't, I don't mean to have people for forever. I like them to, you know, fly the coop and then occasionally come back to me when other things arise. I just had a cardiologist who just came back to me. I hadn't worked with her in over a year. We're just working together twice this week. It's like a gentle brush up on a number of aspects and then she'll be good again for a while. And that, that I love that. That's a nice relationship. And we, we've built that over time. Yeah, I think that counseling, therapy definitely have a place in people's lives. For sure. To have a great therapist is an amazing thing. If that is something that is available to you and you can find someone that's the right match. And I think- And I I do it every week. I do it every week because it's really helpful in me balancing myself for my clients, right? Or whatever, you know, I believe in it and I invest in it. And there can be therapeutic elements of coaching and Mm -hmm. because you are coaching a whole being, but in the end, I think the focus of coaching is usually to help achieve something. Whereas therapy is not about achieving anything, but allowing to be it's, it is a bit more of a doing practice than a just being practice. Very good point. They both have their place and I'm so honored to have had you on the podcast. Oh, it's so great to talk about all this stuff. (laughs) It's great stuff. I hope that people have learned a lot about what opportunities are out there, how they can tell when they are ready for a shift, the sort of role that health and well-being can play in your workplace as well and to help you manage some of those things people often think that it's an either or not that they're mm-hmm. two things that are interconnected so i hope that uh, people took away a lot of learnings from this conversation and denise what is the best way for people to connect with you i think probably denisestewartstudio.com Okay, I will make sure to put that in the show notes. Yeah, it's with the EW. That's the gateway. You can find everything else through the website. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to talk. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Happy-ish. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the follow button and I can promise you more content like this. But don't keep it to yourself. Share it with a friend. So until next time, keep your curiosity alive. Spread kindness wherever you go. And never forget that you are the author of your story. This has been an Awkward Sage production.